This is the New Life Rancho Vista podcast. We are a church committed to loving God, growing together, and serving others. Our prayer and desire is that this message from our campus pastor, Peter Moore, will be a help and an encouragement to you, regardless of where you are in your relationship with Jesus. So let's open our hearts and minds as we turn our attention to the incredible truths God has for us today. I want to take you to the Jezreel Valley. It's about it's about a 20-minute walk, probably be about a 10-minute drive, five seven to seven-minute drive if you're driving fast, from Shunem, which is where this these two stories take place that we're going to survey today. And it's real close to Galilee. You can see this is right about where Jesus grew up. And we see that um, this is a mountainous, kind of a hilly region. Uh, you can see some of the fields with the, the, uh, the, the city of Shunem and the hills in the background. Very agricultural, uh, agrarian type um, topography. Two different types of people. One lady with sons, one lady without. One lady with means, one lady without. Two stories that really show us that against all odds, God can do some incredible things. We're going to talk about investing in God's process today. God has a process and he wants us to invest in it. And I was reading this week uh, in Psalm 18, kind of like Isaac was reading, and I I love the Psalm, but uh, Psalm uh, 18 in, in verse number 28, it says, For thou wilt light my candle, and the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop. By my God I have leaped over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. Word of the Lord is tried as a buckler to all those that trust in him. For who is God save the Lord? Who is a rock save our God? It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. God, your way is perfect. We trust your way. We invest in your way. God, now show us your process for progress, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone in this room wants to make progress. I'm not a prosperity preacher. I don't believe in, 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 you know, name it and claim it. I'm just not that way. I believe in obedience and allowing God to bless you. But the process that we're talking about in this, in this passage of Scripture is God's way. God's way being perfect in Psalm 118. And God's way is perfect. The problem is it doesn't always seem perfect. It, it doesn't always feel perfect. And so here's a key thought. When his way doesn't seem perfect and doesn't feel perfect, but it is perfect, we need to understand that it is, it is our imperfections that's drawing us to something that's better. It's our imperfection that's drawing us to a more perfect way of doing things. And that's why being perfect is not a requirement for choosing God's way made a few of you guys nervous when I said there's one group of people that aren't welcome and all the eyebrows in the room went, what? (laughs) But the reality is all of us bring our imperfection to God as broken people in a sinful world and we bring our imperfection to God in a moment of brokenness and say, God, I choose your way over my way. 
Now, here's the problem with choosing God's way. We can say it's perfect all day, but choosing God's way, it, it involves turning from our own way, turning from our way to God's way. And many times I'm in the community and I love talking to people at Jesus. You've, you've probably heard me say before, you know, I'm not sure how you feel about Jesus, but let me tell you how he feels about you. Yeah, it's cheesy, but it's a pastor thing. You know, just let me, let me have my moment, right? But a lot of times I'll invite people to church and I'll say, hey, listen, you know, do you go to church anywhere? I'd love to invite you. I'm a pastor, you know, and generally at the pastor, it's like, I'm out, you know. Uh, but when I, when, I, when I invite them, many, many people, I've had hundreds of people in Palmdale say, Ho, 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 if I walked in the back door of your church, it would burn down instantly. Like, you do not want me in your church. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people that you would want in your church, but trust me, you don't want me. I've had lots of people tell me that, to which I always say the same thing. And that is this. And, and if I've said this to you, okay, don't know that I meant it for you, but I, I say this a lot, and it is this. You are the reason we started New Life four years ago. You are the reason. When you feel disqualified, that's who God is seeking. The, the very people who feel like, oh man, I could never be a church person. That's the person that God wants to engage. And so we see in this passage a few people who just felt disqualified. A few people who were, were, were lacking something. God engaged with them and gave them a better way. And so there are three truths about God's process that will give us a pathway to progress. And, and I don't know what area you need progress in, but we all want to make spiritual progress. Our, our theme as a church, our purpose as a church is loving God, growing together, serving others. And we all want that progress. We want progress in our walk with God and our walk with one another and our, in our growth in our families and our Christian life. And, and so we have to start right at the very beginning. We're going to start with the first story. There's two stories. We're going to start with the first one. And I want you to see in your notes, number one, God's path to progress is gradual. God's path is always gradual. I wish someone would have told me right when I started my Christian walk, and we have people in all different journeys of their faith here. I wish someone would have said, hey, Peter, it's the little things that matter. It's the little thoughts, it's the little actions, it's the little things. God is a God of the gradual. He's not asking you to take a huge leap of faith. In fact, I grew up with people who were asking me, why wasn't I taking a leap of faith? When I look at scripture and it's, there's never a, a, an ask for a leap of faith, it's always a step of faith. There's never an ask for blind faith. It's always informed faith. And so we come to the story in 2 Kings 4, and we see a widow. She has just lost her husband. He had made most likely a large purchase for their farm. He had to go into debt to make that large purchase, and then boom, he passed away. And now her and her sons were stuck with the debt. And they were trying to pay it off, but they couldn't. And we see that letter A, God starts where you are. Now, let me just say this. I don't care where you are, whether you're watching online or in this place. I don't care where you are spiritually, sexually, uh, physically, emotionally. God starts where you are. And, and God is going to engage you with his grace where you are. I think it's really important as a church, uh, we're not a cruise ship or a battleship, okay? We're a hospital ship. 
And I think it's important for us to understand, listen, you know, you don't walk in the hospital and say, hey, bandage up your wounds and then walk right back in that door. Don't come in here spilling blood on my carpet. <laughs> They're like, hey, you got a problem. Let's put you on a bed, right? Let's help you with that. A hospital is a hospital for the soul, and God starts where you are. God looked at this lady who was literally about to lose her sons because of creditors calling, knocking on her door saying, if you don't pay, we're taking your sons as payment, as collateral. That's how they used to do it. And he was saying, I want to engage where you are. I'm not asking you to pay your debt and then come to Jesus. I'm asking you to come to me with your debt and surrender it to me. And so let's read this first passage of Scripture and uh, the first story, verse number one. 2 Kings chapter four, verses one through seven. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elijah said unto her, what shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God and he said, go, sell the oil and pay thy debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. So here you have a lady, she's in debt, and the man of God says, hey, I want to help you fix that. I want you to go into debt even further. I want you to go, now you have one creditor, now I want you to have multiple creditors. I want you to borrow these pots from all the different other people around you, knock on their doors, say, hey, can we borrow a pot? Can we borrow a pot? Can we borrow a pot? Do that as many times as you can, and take the one little pot that is full of oil, and I want you to pour out the oil you have into the pot that is empty. And I want you to let God do the rest. Now, the word pour is used all throughout the Old Testament. It is this word in the Hebrew that means to transfer from one vessel to another, to flow freely, to, to have a steady and consistent movement, to go from full to empty. So she has a pot of oil, olive oil, that is full, not motor oil, okay? How many of you know they're not cooking with, you know, uh, 5W40 or whatever, you know, but, 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 but it's olive oil in a pot. She's pouring it out. The moment she starts pouring, God starts pouring. God starts multiplying the miracle the moment she decides to pour out. God starts with what she has, and then he gives her more only when she's willing to be obedient and pour out what she has. Do you guys see this? So here's the, here's the important thing to understand. And turn to the next page because there are two types of people in this room and in life. There are people who look at what they don't have and say, poor me. Oh, poor me. I don't have this. I'm, I'm, I'm in debt. My husband died. Poor me. And there's another group of people that say, God, you've given me one little thing of oil 
So I want you to pour me. I want you to pour me out into others. I'm not going to look at what I don't have. I'm going to look at what I do have. I'm going to give what I do have, and I'm going to let you pour into me as I'm pouring into others. And so we see Jesus constantly uh, illustrating this in the the book of John. He, He illustrates it by talking to the woman at the well. No one else would be by her. She went when no one else was there. And, 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 and he says, hey, listen, you can drink of this water and you'll thirst again. But if you'll drink of the water I'm going to give you, the water of the Holy Spirit, the water of the word, right? He said, if, if, if you'll allow me to be your source of fulfillment, if you'll allow me to fill you, I will pour into you and you'll never be thirsty. See, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said on a very similar mount to, to the mount right next to the, the Shumanite uh, village, but, but he, he said this, he said, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. See, it's when you're hungry, it's when you're thirsty, then you're filled. And so there's this, there's this idea of pouring out. Now, here's a key thought. God always starts with what we have. But we must be willing to pour out into others what we have and, and, and to give God what we have to receive his filling. When it says that be not drunk with wine, we're in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit, we've talked about before that that's being filled. Literally, be being filled is, is the way that that would be transliterated it, from the Greek. It, it's, Paul is literally saying, listen, when you are being emptied, he is filling you. As you are filling others, he is filling you. You can be filled with the Spirit as you are seeking to fill others. You start with what you have. Uh, in, in Exodus, I gave you this, this passage. Uh, Moses was like, God, I can't do this. There's no way I can. He said, hey, what's in your hand? Moses, start with what you have. I want you to start with what you have and I'll do the rest. And so here's an action item. Don't wait until it's easy to begin investing into God's kingdom work. Start today. Start investing in God's kingdom work today. What does that mean? It means what God is asking you to do is to love him by loving others. What God is asking you to do is to grow together okay, by making adjustments, by making changes based on his word. God's asking you to serve him by serving others. And so he starts where you are, but how many of you are thankful he doesn't leave you where you are? He starts where you are, but then let her be, God changes who you are. A lot of of people say to me, well, that's just who I am. I can't change. That's just who I am. I'll never change that. That's just, that's just, that literally, I, I have people every single week in my life, that's how I was born. I, I was born with that. I, I, did, I can't change that. It's just a part of my identity. I want you to know something, that God is your creator. And as your creator, he is your definer. And as your definer, he defines what is good and evil. And he defines what is valuable in your life. In fact, it's really important to understand that who he says you are is actually more important than who you think you are. Because I can think anything about myself, but I have to go back to what the word of God says. God defines me. It is not my circumstances that define me. It is not the world that defines me. It is God's word that defines me. I want you to look at the second picture because there's a lady with a lot of wealth the second story, the lady with a lot of position and and she was a great woman, verse number eight. But 
but she didn't have something. She didn't have an identity that was looked up to in that area. She had everything except for a son. She did not have someone to pour into in her family. So I want you to see what she did in verse number eight. Let's look at it. Second Kings chapter four, verses eight through 16. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make him a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall. And let us set for him there a bed, and a table, and a stool, and a candlestick. And it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. And it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Verily, she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thy handmaid. She said, hey, don't pull my leg here. Don't, don't mess with me. I've already, I, I'm, my husband's an old man. I'm, I'm not planning on having a kid. This is a dream I've given up on a long time ago. And God says, I want to give you a word right here. This is going to happen. God changes who she was. She says who she was in verse number 13. She says, I am a person who dwells among my own people. I, I, I help my own people. I help my husband. I help my community. In fact, she was focused on helping him. If you notice verses 8 through 16, you know what she's doing? She's setting up an extra room in her house for the man of God. So she's like, hey, listen. And she even says what she's going to put in there. She says, let's put a bed, a, a little chamber, a, a, something on the wall, a, set him a bed there, table. I mean, she's a regular Joanna Gaines. I mean, she's setting up the house for him. I'll put a little shiplap here, and we'll put this and that. I mean, she's, she's, she's describing interior design for this room that she's making for the man of God. Now, why was she doing this? She couldn't be a, she couldn't be a mom. That wasn't a part of her identity. So what could she do? She could be a host. So she decided to not be defined by what she wasn't, but to be defined by who she was. She was a host. She could do what she could do in her house. God had given her a house, but God had given her a son. And instead of being bitter about that, she just decided to pour into the life of the man of God. Now, let me tell you that God doesn't always change everything around you, but God will change something inside of you through your circumstance. And it's important to understand that God, God wants you to tweak your 
identity, your value system, so that your identity and value, your, your design, is not tied to who serves you or what you have or what status you have in the world, but who you serve. Your identity is based on not how powerful or how resourceful you are, but how useful you are in your world. I don't have to tell you this. You know this. In fact, this is known all throughout the world, that if you're not serving others, there's going to be something missing. There's going to be something inside you that's like, man, there's just, I'm trying to achieve, but I'm just not feeling like I'm reaching that pinnacle of what I could. And I want you to know that there's people all throughout culture, and I'm going to play one video, but there's multiple videos that I could play to you to show you that everyone in culture, you can try your hardest to climb the mountain of success, but at the top of that mountain, there'll still be something missing. So what I've done is I've found a video, and there's many like this, but here's one of our cultural icons talking about the fact that you can climb any mountain you want but the mountain of service is really the, the one that's worth climbing, not the mountain of success. Watch this. And the, the idea is I've been to the mountaintop, right? And it's like, I'm going to do reports from the summit, right? I've been to the top of money. I've, I've had all the sex that I've ever wanted. I've had all of the adulation and, and adoration. And I've been to the top of all of those material world mountains. And nothing makes you happy other than being useful to others. That's it. That's the only thing that ever will satisfy that thing is that what you are is useful. Now, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus knew what Will Smith was just saying, and that is that your life, your meaning, your worth is actually not tied to Anything that the world says it's tied to, it's actually tied to your purpose for existing. And that is to bring pleasure to God by serving others. You serve God by serving others. It's amazing to me how there are so many people in life who are, who are looking for a new season, uh, something greater, something better, but it's always just beyond reach, that feeling of satisfaction, that that thing that he was talking about, the internal satisfaction meter just doesn't reach there until you get to the moment of usefulness. And ultimately, the moment of usefulness in our Christian life is the moment where we are living a kingdom-minded life, a life that is focused on God's plan, not our own. And so he says to this lady, he said, hey, you've been in a season of serving now God's going to be in a season of blessing. And she says, please, please don't, don't pull my leg here. Don't lie to me. Now, she wasn't con you know, condemning him and calling him a liar. She was just saying, please, don't lead me on. I I I've been here before, and I, and I, and I don't want to dig this whole thing back up and he says, no, this is the season. Now, the word season here uh, in verse number, um, I believe it's 15, 
is the word miod, it, it literally means an appointed time. It, it's, it's a meeting place with destiny. It's an appointment with a purpose. It's saying God is bringing you into a new season for a new reason. He's saying God is doing something in your life because you have been stepping into your purpose. You don't find your purpose. You don't stumble upon your purpose. You step into your purpose. You find, wow, this is what I was created to do. And she was created to serve. She thought it was serving just others, but God says, no, I'm going to put a blessing in you. It's going to call, it's going to be called a child. I'm going to give you what you've always wanted in a moment of serving. And it is, this is a key thought, the greatest needs in life are met through the simplest moments of selfless serving. So I would encourage you to ask yourself, how is God enabling me to pour into and invest into the life of others? You say, well, I give and I, and I help and I serve and all of those things are really, really good and they're, they're a part of who we are. We'll be doing that for eternity. But I want to ask you this, and here's an action item. I want you to look over the last week and truly ask yourself, of everything that happened last week, what did God enable you to do that could have never happened had not God helped you? You couldn't have done it without him. See, a lot of us, as one author put it, we, we live in practical atheism. We say we believe in God, but really if you took God out of our lives, we could do everything on our schedule. We have to come to a point where we realize, wait a second, God wants to enable me to go beyond my own resources in order to help others in need. So the process is gradual. <clears throat> Number two, I want you to see that God's grace is powerful. God's grace is powerful. Now, we live in a broken world that makes us long for heaven, and something incredibly devastating happens in this passage. I want you to see it starting in verse number 17. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. And when the child was grown, it fell on the day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, my head, my head. And he said to a lad, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him, he brought him to his mother. He sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor, nor Sabbath. And she said, it shall be well. Then she saddled the an ass and said to her servant, drive, go forward, slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Caramel. And it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, behold, yonder it's the Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, it is well. So here you have this woman. She's so happy that God's provided a, a son. He's most likely probably around 10 to 11, maybe even 12. And he dies of heat stroke. That's most likely what, why it's telling us he was in the field working. And, and dies of heat stroke. 
she lays him on the bed that she had made for the man of God. And she gets on her donkey and she's riding as fast as she can. Now, Samaria was about, you know, it's, it's probably about a 20-minute drive from a modern-day uh, Shunem to, to, to Samaria. And, and so, I'm, you know, I'm guessing it took about an hour, maybe, maybe a little less, if she was riding pretty fast. I mean, just imagine this lady riding as fast as she can, you know, crying, you know, an ugly cry, you know, mascara everywhere. She's just getting to the man of God. She's heartbroken. She's devastated. She's running to the only person she knows who can help. And that is God. In a moment of grief, she's seeking God's grace. And she says when the, the assistant says, oh man, that's the shoe of my woman. Is everything okay? Are, are you okay? And she says to her husband, it will be well. She says to Gehazi, it is well. And then when she comes into the house where Elisha is, he says, something is not well. Now, why does she say it will be well? Why does she tell the servant it is well? And why does Elisha notice something is not well? Because in this moment, she is speaking faith. Her putting the child on the bed is an act of faith. In fact, it was against the law for her not to immediately bury her child. She could have been arrested for that. So she, in an act of faith, believing that God was going to do something, she didn't know what he was going to do, but she said, I'm going to lay my son on this bed, the bed of the man that I made for the man of God. I'm going to lay him there, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to ask him to do something, anything. I'm just going to ask. And when, he, when she got there, she said to the servant, not only will it will be well, that's what she said to her husband, but now by the time she got to Samaria, she said, it is well. I want you to know that the word it is well is one word in Hebrew. It's shalom. And so the servant would have called out, the, the, the assistant would have said, shalom with you? And she would have said, shalom with me. Shalom. Like it is well. It's, it's complete. It's, it's sound. It's, I'm still favored. I'm secure. I'm trusting God in this process. I'm at peace with whatever happens. It's well. And it is this passage that Horatio Spafford, when he lost a child, many child, children, when he lost his children, he was reading this passage and he said, if she can say it as well, shalom, peace, then I can say that as well. This is the story of the song that we sang earlier, it as well. Horatio Spafford was a well-known lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the 1860s where he lived with his wife, Anna, and their five children. He had invested heavily in real estate along the shores of Lake Michigan. He was a prosperous man and a devout Christian. However, in 1870, a series of events began to turn Horatio's world upside down. That year, Horatio and Anna's only son died scarlet fever at the tender age of only four. A year later, while the Spaffords were still grieving the loss of their son, the great Chicago fire broke out and destroyed nearly every one of Horatio's investments. 
his entire life savings was gone. Aware of the toll these disasters had taken on his family, Horatio decided to take his wife and four daughters on a holiday to England, where they planned to accompany the famous evangelist D.L. Moody on his next crusade. However, just before they set sail, a last-minute business development forced Horatio to delay. Not wanting to ruin the family holiday, he persuaded his family to go on as planned, and he would follow along later. With this decided, Horatio stayed in Chicago while Anna and the girls boarded the French steamship Ville du Havre to set sail for England. But several days later, Horatio received devastating news. The Ville du Havre had been struck by an iron sailing vessel from England. The ship sank in only 12 minutes, claiming the lives of 226 passengers. It was the worst disaster in naval history until the sinking of the HMS Titanic 40 years later. The next day, he received a telegraph from Anna from Wales. It read these six words, Survived alone, what should I do? The Spafford's four daughters were among those who perished. After hearing the terrible news, Horatio boarded the next ship out of New York to join his bereaved wife. During his voyage, the captain of the ship called him to the bridge. A careful reckoning has been made, he said, and I believe we are now passing the very place where the Ville du Havre sank. And it was there while staring into the watery grave of his beloved daughters, that Horatio penned the words to the great hymn, It is well with my soul. That's what we just sang. It is well with my soul. It goes when peace like a river, you know, and, and, and we just sang the song, listen, in the moment of grief, put yourself in that, in that man's shoes, in that couple's shoes. Put, that, put yourself in this, in this woman's shoes. She's broken. She's in a moment of grief. And it's in that moment of grief that God's grace enables. Listen, there's, there are lots of people whose stories are just as epic and incredible where just horrific things that have happened this last year. And I want you to know that I've watched God's grace in some of your lives that are just, he's enabling you that God's grace is, yes, undeserved favor, but it's also divine enablement. Here's a key thought. It's in grief. It's the greatest moment of power that we understand the power of the grace of God. And it's the greatest experience of grace is in that grief and that difficulty. We see that God is near to the brokenhearted. God helps and Many times in a, in a difficult circumstance, we try to get God to change the circumstance and change the situation. But ultimately, here's an action item. Instead of asking God to seek to change the circumstance, which many times we don't, we need to seek His grace. We need to seek 
the steadfast and sure hope of heaven. We need to seek the things that won't change. Your identity won't change in Jesus Christ. His grace won't change. How he feels about you won't change. His love won't change. And so the process is gradual. His grace is powerful. But then finally today, God's process is personal. It's always personal. And I want you to see what happens because here you have uh, the the servant, uh, the, the the assistant of Elisha, the the prophet of God. He he, he goes to the house and he's going to try to raise up this uh, boy with the staff, with the little staff of Elisha, but it doesn't work. And I want you to see what does work. Notice this, verse twenty-seven, Second Kings chapter four, verses twenty-seven to thirty-four. And when she came to the man of God to the hills, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her. And the Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me. Then she said, did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, gird up thy loins, take my staff in thine hand and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. If any salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awake. And when Elisha was coming to the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. And he went in therefore, shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Now, I don't know about you, whatever the context, that's a little awkward. I mean, you know, eye to eye, hand to hand, mouth to mouth. I mean, you know, you say, well, you know, you know, he's dead and he's trying to revive him. And, you know, you got a little CPR action. No, 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 no. That's not what he's doing. All right. He's getting up close and personal. Why in the world would God do that? And if you, if you keep reading, you'll notice that the man of God does that. The child gets warm, but he's still dead. He's warm, but dead. So here he is walking back and forth in the house, and then this happens. Verse 35. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 35 through 37. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, and went up and stretched himself upon him, and the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she was coming unto him, he said, Take up thy son. Then she went in, and fell at his feet, and bowed herself to the ground, and took up her son, and went out. Now, I have to tell you, you know, sometimes I get something wrong. The first service, I was depicting this as, as Elisha walking around and hearing the sneezing. But then I remembered, and I realized that it actually gets a little bit more awkward than that. Like, Elisha is face down. Obviously, God told him to do that. He's face down trying to revive this kid, And I know we're in COVID, but you just have to think about this. 
the kid starts sneezing right when he's there. I mean, like, it's bad enough to be popping someone's personal bubble, but when you're popping someone's personal bubble and they sneeze in your face, I just don't even want to think about that, right? I mean, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, it's just up close and personal. Let me tell you why Jesus, or, you know, the Son of God put this in this passage, why the Holy Spirit led this passage to be in, in our Bibles today, and I really believe this. Those that are dead don't sneeze. Sneezing is actually something healthy. It's something that the body does to, 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 to get something out of your body. It's a healthy action. Alive people sneeze. And I believe that when God uh, sent life back into that boy, that the process was messy, and it always is messy. And the process was gross, and sometimes it's gross. And the process was not expected, and it's always not what you expect but the process was miraculous. And when God's personal process uh, involves in your life, when you just trust him and invest in God's process, you can trust him with the progress. And that's the takeaway today, is invest in God's process, in God's obedience, in God's process, and trust him with the progress. Thanks again for listening. If you would like to learn more about our church or how to get connected, check us out online at findnewlife.church or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Find New Life. Have an amazing day.